Hello, planet Earth. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. Be sure to go to iTunes, leave us some reviews. We like seeing those, as always. And this podcast... Brought to you by Die Bomb with a brand new promo code. Yep. No more uh, No more of the old one. The new one is... BHP10. BHP10. As in Big Honker Podcast 10, all in big letter, or big, what do you call that? All in caps. All caps. All caps. Get, get with the times, Jeff. Yeah. Use the promo code at divebombindustries.com. It will save you 10% off of your entire purchase. They've got every kind of silhouette that you can imagine. They've got Canada, Specs, Snows, Pigeons, Pintails, Mallards. they got socks to go along with everything, cranes if you're into that sort of thing. Fill up your shopping cart. The season is actually a lot closer than what you think. Yep, We're not bomb. that far away. Use the promo code BHP10. It will save you 10% off of your purchase all caps at divebombindustries.com that's it this show is also brought to you by boss shot shells changing the game bismuth hits like a freaking freight train we love it here in texas um only need one you don't got to shoot them two three times one time all made in america every piece of the shotgun shell that they sell you is made and manufactured here in america bossshotshells.com bismuth is the way to go and check out their clothing line. They got some really cool stuff. They do. And everything that they do, 100% made here in America. So we cannot say enough about the guys over at Boss Shot Shells. So BossShotShells.com, check them out now. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. If you're a duck hunter, spinners are a necessity, especially if you're hunting in dry land, dry field, that sort of hunting, which is the way that I recommend to do it. You're going to need a spinner. You need about eight of them. Go to LuckyDuck.com. You can get whatever you need. If you're a predator hunter, they've got stuff for you also. They've got collars. Uh, they've got all sorts of gadgets for predator hunters. So be sure. Check them out. They've got everything that you really need. And dove season's coming up, and they got pigeon decoys coming out. There so you get go. Those. <clears throat> spinning wing. If it needs a spinning wing or some kind of motion to attract it, Lucky Duck is your answer. We love them. Waterproof. They're great. And if you've never dove hunted with spinners, jump all over it i'm telling you it changes the game i've got guys that call me all the time hey, you don't really need them spinners listen those birds you're not gonna have to get in a flyaway you just put them out and they come to you just like decoy and ducks jump on lucky duck spinners and go to luckyduckdecoys.com why do you always fuck that up what i say it's luckyduck.com oh said it five times luckyduck.com i don't i don't listen to you andy we all know that we're also brought to you by 737 Let's call this boy uses right here. The old number one. Made by boys in Oklahoma. Kill ducks anywhere. That's right. Best duck to call on the market. That's 737duckcalls.com. Check them out. They got all kinds of new colors. They got new stuff coming out all the time. They flat get it done. There ain't nothing else I can say about it. 737duckcalls.com. Made in Oklahoma. Kill birds anywhere. We're also brought to you by William and Chris Wines. Texas wine. Premium Texas wine. Chris is living the dream, making wine every day, drinking wine, all that good stuff. Uh, they're at all of the high market supermarket or high high end supermarkets. Uh, they've got any kind of wine that you can imagine, reds, whites, whatever. Uh, William Chris Wines, I believe they'll even ship it to you. So you can go to their website, WilliamChrisWines.com, and get whatever that you need. And this show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics, also a U.S. made. Athlon Optics is a proud U.S. sports optic product company devoted to designing and delivering superior quality optic products and outdoor accessories at a competitive price to you, the consumer. 
Athlon has strong engineering design capability, strategic alliances with quality manufacturers, and a streamlined, fully integrated supply chain. Whether you're shooting prairie dogs or scouting those geese or ducks the night before, Athlon Optics has a product that you need. So go to athlonoptics.com, get your binoculars, get your scopes. They've also got red dot sights. They got it all. If you need to look through it so you can shoot something or find something, Athlon Optics is the way to go. Also, we're brought to you by C-Light LEDs. You can light up the world. No more fumbling around in the dark. No more looking for whatever you might be needing on your hunt or your next excursion. Put them on your boats, fishing boats, bow hunting boats. If you're a waterfowl hunter, put them on your trailers. They are so important. I cannot even begin to describe from hunting and setting out decoys in the dark to setting out decoys with sea lights. Literally a night and day difference. Like you said, light up the world. SeaLightLDs.com. And last but not least, we are brought to you by the great and powerful Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Been in business forever. Right. Home, home of the Big Hunger Lodge. Started this sucker back in college. Just a dream. Dove season's coming up next. It is so close, we can start to taste it. September 1, we'll get here. It'll be here before we know it. We're excited about this upcoming season. So if you need a quality hunt at a great price and you get to hang out with us, we ought to be paying you for that. Call us, 940-658-3172. We'll get you on the books right now. We got dove hunting coming up in September. Got some teal hunts if you're into that sort of thing. Then we'll move on to duck season. Then we'll move on to goose season, and then we'll just keep rolling. So if you need anything like that, give us a call. Jeff will be the one to talk to you. I'm at stanfieldhunting.com, 940-658-3172, and thank you for listening to the Big Honker Podcast. Right on. This podcast, uh, we're joined by Donnie Vincent. He's one of the smartest individuals that I think that we have ever had on this podcast. He is, uh, I mean, he, he's, when you say the word conservationist, it does not do justice to what Donnie Vincent is. He's a man, he's a filmmaker, he's bringing to life what we all know as hunters. Um, I mean, he's just an incredible human being. Uh, really, really enjoyed talking to him, and uh, we hope that you enjoy it. And we hope that you go check out his, uh, his new film called The Other Side. You can check it out uh, on his website. But anyway, here he is, Donnie Vincent. Here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast, sponsored by Dive Bomb Industries. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And on the line today with us, we have a real treat. We have Donnie Vincent with us, who is Mr. Cinematic. Uh, I don't even know how to explain. Just a, he's an outdoor guru, kind of, in my book. Donnie, how are you doing? Good, man. How are you guys doing? It's hot in Texas. 104 today. Is it? Oh, my goodness. Oof. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds really hot to me. And we've had so much rain, which is kind of we're in northwest Texas, and uh, we've had so much rain this spring and summer. It, the mosquitoes are bad. It's humid. We're not used to that. It's normally dry this time of year. So 
it's hot and miserable. Yeah, you can, you can handle the heat, or at least I can handle the heat, and, and I can handle, I feel like I can handle anything, to be completely honest with you, but if I'm just casually spending time at home or just casually spending time in a particular place and there's a lot of mosquitoes or there's a lot of things that are, you know, are just kind of wearing you down, it's, it's entirely different than if you're going on an expedition. If I'm going someplace for a month or two months or three months, and they say, hey, it's the worst bugs you're ever going to see in your life. I don't care. Totally fine. I just mentally set my mind to it. Uh-huh. But if I'm just sitting at home on the front porch and the mosquitoes are eating you alive, it's, that's actually much harder than, than, than it, you know, attacking it individually. They'll drive you mad. Well, I, I saw a video, one of your videos today, and it shows mosquitoes around your head net, and it's just terrible. And I'm thinking, oh, that's got to be freaking miserable. That's just, I guess that's just part of it when you go up in the Northwest like that you do? Yeah, I mean, that that's just, yeah, anytime, there's two places, oftentimes when I go to places, whether it be, you know, Texas has been one of them, I've been to Florida a few times where guys, when I show up there, uh, you know, I'll be hunting and fishing or whatever, and guys will say, man, we have really bad mosquitoes, and I say, oh, no, that's cool, I'm, I'm fine, and they go, no, 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 like, worst mosquitoes you've ever seen in your life, and I say, wait a minute, man, like... I'm not. I'm not one for up, one upping someone, and I'm not one for saying, "Hey, no, really, my experience has been worse." But I, I've spent many a summers on the tundra in Alaska studying fish for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And let me tell you, when you are camping amongst ten million lakes and it's really hot all summer long, like there is, it is. There's literally clouds of mosquitoes, like you saw in that video. That was. That was grizzly bear hunting in the spring in the in the uh, northwest Alaska, and there's there's absolutely nothing that compares to it. Well, it looks it it absolutely looks miserable. It's, so so is that how you got your? Is that kind of was that kind of your first uh, big boy job? Was was with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up in uh, up up in the northern country? Yeah, I mean you could you could say that. I, I had done some uh, research in school that was pretty cool. I was fortunate enough to go over to Asia and do some do some work on Bengal tigers and stuff, but that was all really short stints of, of things and, and just more or less did it for the experience uh, to build my resume and to see a part of the world that I'll probably never be in again or, or you know, at least very rarely going to be in. And, and then after school, um, yeah, my first biologist jobs were with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service studying Pacific salmon. There's just a lot of, you know, when you work as a researcher, you're either getting money from... Um, colleges or different research grants, different states, things like that. And when you when you have an animal like the Pacific salmon, you know, it has billions of dollars around it because of sport fishing, uh, because of commercial fishing, and because of uh, native fisheries, um, gill netters, you know, there's there's a lot of information and a lot of pressure on the salmon. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of dollars for research. So it's pretty easy to to head that direction for work and there and it's a really specific skill set the work that I did because they're looking for people that can live in the wilderness for three, four, five months at a time and and um and that's a that's a very particular uh individual set of skills. What's the longest you've stayed out in the woods at one time? Uh f- five months. Five mm-hmm. months I slept in a two person North Face tent for five months. I've done it a few times. Wow. How did you get so good with your social media and all that stuff, spending time in the woods that long? Oh, man, my social media has nothing to do with me. That, that <laughs> is, that, that's really funny that you asked that because that has literally nothing to do with me. I do the writing, 
uh, I do the storytelling in the social media, uh, but the guys that work at Sick Manta, um, you know, I collaborate with them. They're, they're the ones that post, like if you, I have never posted a single thing on Facebook or Instagram in my entire life. Not a single, if you said to me, <laughs> here's $10 million, post something on Instagram, you have five minutes to post something on Instagram, I doubt I could figure it out. That's insane. What kind of phone do you, yeah, you got? You got an iPhone or you just have a regular flip phone? iPhone. I have an iPhone. You, so, so you're you're, you're caught up there. No, no fun social media apps or anything on it, though. No, no. Uh, the only thing I do on social media is um, when when we're telling stories, whether it be you know we're doing ten for ten from Australia or Tiburon Island, or right now we're posting about some fishing stuff that I just got done doing. Um, we go through the photos. We select the photos together, or even like Kyle Nicklay, he's my producer. He'll select the photos, or I should say, he's the producer at Sigmanta. Um, he'll select the photos and say, what do you think of these? And I'll say, they're great. And then he'll be like, yeah, so, uh, you know, give me some, give me some, uh, text of, of how you're feeling and kind of what the storytelling is. So I'll write it. And then, and then when I'm writing people, right, if, if, um, if there are comments on there and stuff, the majority of it is I'm writing back to people. Um, the guys might do like a really, like if somebody says, Hey, where can I buy your films? And, and the responses at donningvincent.com. That that might be one of the guys just giving a quick response. But I'm I'm the guy that does the writing and the responses. Uh, they're the ones that do all the posting and all the managing and running the account and everything. I would yeah. If I could delete Instagram and Facebook today, I absolutely would. Well, um, I want to go back to before you said you you did the Bengal Tigers. What yes. what did what did you do there? Uh, there's two different studies that we were working on. One was in Bangladesh, um, and there's a, a, a massive swamp in uh, the southern part of Bangladesh uh, called the Sunderbonds. It's the world's largest mangrove swamp, and that's where you see, you've seen images of tigers swimming across canals and tigers in the jungle laying in the water, and that's primarily where those images have been collected. It's a, it's a significant population of tigers. Of course, it's still, they're still extremely endangered. There's still poaching that goes on there, but it's a, it's a series of canals and islands where these tigers live. And, and they do have some engagement with the, uh, native communities around there. They're, they're, the tigers there are man eaters, uh, like most tigers are. If they get the opportunity to take a person, they will. Um, and, and when you have, you know, little kids playing in the jungle or running around the jungle and you have, People out there collecting honey. You have fishermen out there. You have woodcutters out there. There's a there's a, a great deal of overlap where tigers start to take people, and and that's always a that's always an issue and and always something to look at. And uh, and so what we did in Bangladesh was we were driving up and down canals looking for tiger track marks, and basically anytime you saw a tiger cross a canal or you saw tiger tracks, that was considered an event. And so we were mapping out all these different, I mean, literally millions of miles of canals and um, counting tiger tracks, which go into a, uh, a particular equation, a biological equation, and it comes up with, um, you know, an estimate of the population of what's going on right now. So it's just kind of a continued research. Uh, you're looking at the overlap of human beings, and you're looking at uh, tigers' distribution and numbers to see how they're, how they're doing. And then I did a secondary study in Nepal, in southern Nepal in the Royal Chitwan National Forest, which is called Death Valley. Uh, it's a really gnarly place with, with uh, you know, malaria, and, and, and there's just a lot of things uh, going on there. And, and uh, I did some research there where we had Tiger's radio collar, and we were just looking at how basically they use their, how they use their uh, terrain and how their populations were doing there. 
And how long were you over there for? All told. Um, each each one was a couple of months. Did you feel safe over there? Uh, I mean, relatively. Not not. I mean, safe is a relative term. Like I, I never was was on my knees with my hands bound and a, and a gun to my head. But I had plenty <laughs> of machine guns pointed at me. Plenty of plenty of checkpoints that I had to go through. Plenty of violence that I saw on the streets. And then, mm. of course, when we're in the ju- that's just where where there's people. Right. And then when we go to when we go in the jungle, you know the the all the water is filled with saltwater crocodiles and bull sharks, and all the and all the land is filled with king cobras and and oh. Bengal tigers oh. and, and spiders, and <laughs> so literally there there isn't a square inch of of safety. You know, like one day I came out of the jungle. Uh, we go into the jungle barefoot, oh, um, because otherwise the mud is the mud is too sticky. It'll literally pull your boots off. So we go into the jungle barefoot, and we come out. And I was washing my feet, you know, off the side of the boat, and. You know the guy's like, man, you wash your feet way too long. Like you're gonna get snatched right off the side of the boat. You can't, you can't, you know, like you have to just dip your feet, clean them off, and then dip them one more time and be done. It's just everything there bites. Everything there is looking for a meal, and and you know, and all the water is uh, like chocolate milk, right? You can't see one inch down, so you you literally have no idea what's what's stalking you at any given time. Well, I'm gonna tell you right now. Everybody I knew that I thought was a man's man is not a man's man. There is no way in hell I would be walking barefoot where there. I don't like snakes at all. <laughs> I'm particular about my feet too. I just I wear house shoes. Everywhere. And just imagine, just imagine. Most people don't realize a king cobra can be 15 feet long. Oh, I'm scared to death of snakes. You know, like a lot a lot of people think the anaconda or the python are the only really long snakes. A, a king cobra can be. Uh, 10 11 12 13 14 feet long and can slither at an incredible speed it's it's unbelievable how fast they can move and in a in a situation like that where how far would you be from the nearest help if you were to get struck by a king cobra or something like that days oh you'd be dead you'd you'd be dead oh days 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 oh yeah i mean i mean yeah days like you would be a day by boat, and then you'd have to get in some sort of automobile or jeep, and they'd have to drive you, you know, probably like 12, 13 hours to the nearest. If there even is anti-venom in the country, I have no idea. Jeez. That don't that don't sound like much fun. I'm I, And I'm trying to think right now, I hate freaking snakes enough that I think I would choose to be with the bull sharks and the saltwater crocodiles before I would want to be on the land. <laughs> And, and, and then and with the, the tigers, right? With the tigers, yeah. they're used to like when you're around grizzly bears. People always talk about grizzly bears or black bears. Or polar bears are a little bit different because with polar bears, they look at everything as food. But when you're around, well, I was working with with the professor that I was working with, Dr. David Smith. I, you know, I said to him, I I had not been around grizzly bears at all yet. I'd been to Alaska several times, but I'd yet to see a grizzly bear at this point in my life. And but I knew, you know, I've read the books on what you're supposed to do when you see a grizzly bear and stand tall and speak quietly and confidently and, and you know, hopefully they run away. And if they charge you and hate you and attack you, then you play dead and try to get the attack. You know, you're definitely going to get chewed on, but try to get the attack over as quickly as you can. It's a lot easier said than done. But with tigers, I, I asked Dr. Smith, I said, hey, so if I see a tiger, you know, I'm in the jungle and, you know, and so like, so what's, you know, what's what's my behavior? And he goes, oh, just take it all in and just completely appreciate the, the experience. Cause, uh, you're, you're dead. <laughs> mm. How close? He's like, if he, if he, you know, if he's probably going to run, but if he doesn't run, if he, if he flips the switch to, 
that he wants you, like you're done, dead. <laughs> That's over. Like he's not stopping until you're dead. <laughs> what, what's the closest you had to you got to one? Oh, you know, we got. I'll tell you this: not very close, right? Like, um, I, I, I should rephrase that: very close, but I did not see him. So we would look at tracks. We could see where they would place their tracks in the mud, and then. Their, their tracks, as they stepped in the track and stepped out of it, their track would fill with water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you find a track that was even like 30 minutes old, it would be halfway full of water. If you found a track several hours old, it would be fully full of water. And if you found a track that was a day old, the track would be full of water and deteriorated. Like the edges would start to slough off into the track. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, we found tracks several times that were a perfect shape of a tiger's foot and where the water was just starting to dimple up through the bottom of the track. Mm. So that's close. So he's, yeah, yeah, he's within, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 yards. He's right there. So did did you ever fear for your life when you was in the jungles there ever? No, 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 not, not, not fear for my life, but it was just, ah, you know, it's, I, I don't, it's, I'm not saying it's anything like being in the military, but um, it's just a hyper-awareness, right? And then where we were also in Bangladesh, this is, sounds so bizarre, but there are a number of pirates in the area. Hmm. And, and so these guys travel around on these little boats with, with machine guns, and they, they just they steal fish, and they steal honey, and they steal fruit. And, and they do a lot of kidnapping, and, you know, they're looking for any sort of ransom whatsoever that they can get their hands on. But they're literally these little groups of pirates. Like, when the main mothership that I slept on, um, you know, we had, like, huge machine guns on, the, on, on turrets on the front of the boat. Not for tigers, for people. <laughs> yeah. That's... We, so, we we take for granted we live in America. Gosh, mighty. Oof. I mean, oh, you have no idea. You have no idea what we take for granted. I mean, yeah, I, the fact that you have clothing on and money in your bank account, you, you literally, you'll never conceptualize. None of us will. Even with me saying these words, you will never conceptualize what the re- reality of being a human being in some of these places is. Like the fact that you can buy a pair of blue jeans. Or the fact that you can put gas in your car or have money in your kid's piggy bank or you can buy a donut on Saturday. Like, you literally, like, in America, we all look at, like, the Kardashians and we look at Bill Gates and we look at all these people that are billionaires or hyper-rich and they drive Ferraris and we go, wow, I wonder what it's like to be that guy. Well, we, we are that person to literally billions of people mm-hmm. what we have is unattainable to billions of people yeah i, th- I think i saw a stat uh thirty three thousand dollars a year and you're in the top one percent in the entire world if you make if, if you make that in america thirty thousand dollars a year you're in the top one yeah. percent for the entire world and most of the yeah, world still go up, dollars a day making a dollar or two a day yeah and you go up even a little bit more than that, right? This is a logarithmic scale, which means as you go up from 33 to, let's say you go to $40,000, well, now you're in the top half percent, right? You go to $50,000, now you're in the top. I mean, you make $100,000 a year, you are in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the 1% wealthiest in the world. I mean, it's just, what would these, I mean, since it's such a poor country, 
these these pirates take these uh, hostages. I mean, what could they get out of the deal? These families don't have anything. Oh, oh, they might. Yeah, they might get nothing. Right? They might get nothing, and and then so they'll just, you know, you're not going to live through the experience. Like you're not. Once you're kidnapped, you're not. You're not ever getting released. Right? There's not a. They're 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 looking for ransom, and you're going to die. Right. Mm. Yeah. My. Yeah. It's a gnarly place. It's it's a place, and and the Bangladeshis, the people there, were beautiful, wonderful people, like um, amazing people, like very, very sweet. Very, but there's just like like any place you go, you know, if you go to downtown Chicago, you go to, you know, <clears throat> certain parts of New York City, you go to certain parts of Minneapolis, you go to certain parts of Kansas City. I don't care where you are, Florida, Texas, <clears throat> you go to the wrong neighborhood, sure, and uh, you're gonna find yourself in a in a predicament and it was the same way in, in Bangladesh, but the majority of the people were uh, just absolutely fantastic. there, wonderful. And same with Nepal, the people, Nepalese people were just amazing, amazing people and very, very sweet. And, uh, it was really fun because most of the people that I ran into, I'd never seen a white person. And so <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you walk in a restaurant and that place just, I mean, just like a movie, that place just stopped. Did, did, then, you, did you have um, the hair then too? Like the, the long hair back then or not? Yeah. Too yeah. Yes. I had the hair and I had a pretty, a pretty gnarly beard. Uh, the guy that I did research for, he said, he said, just show up. Mm -hmm. Basically, he just said, show up looking as gnarly as you can, like as grizzled as you can. And he said, I don't care if you don't know, but no matter what, when we're in these cities and we're moving around these people, no matter what, you stand tall, shoulders back, chest out, you stare forward and you walk like you exactly know where you're going. Even mm -hmm. if you don't, you absolutely know. You act like you've been there a hundred times. Yeah. Same way in New York City. You get stopped. For, you <laughs> yeah. get stopped real quick in New York City if you look just a little bit lost. So, uh, I saw some video where you've done the bear stuff. Now you've dealt with grizzlies. Most of the videos I saw, you're bow hunting a grizzly. Do you not carry a gun with you at all? Mm -mm. No. Um, now I have when I bow hunted grizzlies. When I've been bow hunting grizzlies, I have a guide with me, right? That's the law. I have to have a guide with me, and he is, and by law, I think he has to be carrying a firearm. And so when I've actually bow hunted grizzlies, I have a gun with me. Um, the gentleman behind me is carrying it. Uh, but all the other hunting that I've done in Alaska, whether that be moose hunting, caribou hunting, black bear hunting, all of that stuff, I've, I've never carried a firearm with me. Hmm. I'll tell you what, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't mm. now, but I, I just didn't then. Right. What's what's the close? And okay, so for people that don't know, what's the protocol for when you get charged by a grizzly versus when you get charged by a black bear? Because they're different, well, aren't they? Yeah, totally different. Totally different. Now I'd say everything starts out the same. Um, you know, everything starts out with you standing tall, speaking calmly. Uh, letting that bear know that you're there, whether with your scent or with voice, and I would say both if you can, because if they get a if they get a nose full of you, um, and I can tell a story in a moment here where I actually ran at a grizzly bear one time to to get him some of my scent so he could turn and run. But um, so you just want to give the bear indication that you're there, right? And mm -hmm. and I have I have actually snuck away from bears. I bumped into black bears very very close and a couple of, one time with a grizzly bear very very close where i saw an opportunity to sneak away and both of them were sows with cubs mm -hmm. and so i saw an opportunity to sneak away where they may not know i was there because there was a stream that was rushing by making a lot of noise 
and I had the wind in my favor. So I just quickly took the 20 yards that was between us and just backed off, you know, making it 50 yards very, very quickly and then slowly sneaking out of there. But with both bears, you just want to give indication that you're there. Stand tall, raise your arms up. If you have a group of people, you want to slowly start moving together. If there, you know, even if there's two of you and you're 10 yards apart, move together so that you're standing together. It would be much more formidable for them to attack two people standing together uh, rather than one. And if there's three, um, that's even better. And and um, and then if they charge. You know, you basically, like with a black bear, I'm going to make as much noise as possible, scream, yell, stop. I might even move towards them a little bit, try to intimidate them as much as possible. And then if they make contact with you, you know, fight like hell. Mm -hmm. you, you fight for your life. Like, you fight that bear. And, of course, there are outliers, right? There are black bears that are bigger than grizzly bears and are going to give you um, a handful. And there are very small black bears that have killed very big men. So this isn't foolproof or <laughs> risk-free. This is, these are just guidelines, but with a black bear, you're going to fight like hell with a, with a grizzly bear. You just don't have the power. Like they're just too strong and they're very typical where they want to knock down the threat. They want to bite it a few times. Oftentimes you'll read about guys getting bit in the back and in the butt cheeks and the back of the legs because you're rolling over on your tummy to protect your guts. You're locking your fingers behind your neck to protect the back of your neck. And so you read a lot about guys getting chewed on on their backside, and then you hear a lot of guys getting scalped. And that's because that grizzly bear is trying to put their head in, in her, his or her mouth, and they're trying to crush his skull, Oof. his or her skull, with a bite. But our skulls are too big for yeah. the grizzly bears, so their teeth slide up along our skulls mm. scalping us <laughs> and so you'll hear a lot of stories oh. about guys getting scalped because the grizzly bears are trying to crush their skulls but the teeth just slide up along their their skulls and scrape all the skin and hair off mm. and, and, and i mean it's got to be like just screaming bloody murder I, I, would that antagonize that grizzly bear even more yeah, you can't do that. Oh, I know it's it's easier said than done, but you're going to have, like, literally when they say play dead, that doesn't Nothing. mean scream and cry and wiggle. No, that <laughs> means you freaking, like, use all, every ounce of adrenaline you have. To keep your mouth every, shut while it's scalping you. Yeah, keep your, yeah, because you want her to think the threat is eliminated. It's gone. Yeah. You want her to sit there and say, okay, me and my babies are safe now. I'm going to move off. And, of course, there are a million instances. There, ha there are guys that have been bowled over where the bear literally just comes and runs them right over. There have been guys where the bears come back several times. There have been bears that bowl a guy over, and then they come back to try to kill the guy. There's, you know, there was a guy in the Northwest Territories last year or year before. Uh, I think him and his hunter were working on a moose, and a grizzly came out of nowhere and sprang and, like, literally killed. She killed the guy in just a couple of seconds. Like, there are there are outliers in every single category. Sure. So it's... it's uh, you, you know, you're in for a fight of your life, and, and uh, you just have to have wits about you and and read each and every situation. Like, I've, I've never been afraid around bears. I've had a couple of situations where it's gotten my attention, and I've had a couple instances. A few years ago, I was in Alaska, and I, had to, I was hunting black bears, and I had to get back to my camp at night. And in order, I, was, I, was, I would always hunt this beach, and then high tide would come in, and so I'd go to this beach on low tide or as the tide was slipping out, and I was able to sneak along this forest to get to this beach. But if I wasn't successful, very often I had to hike back to my camp in the forest 
with high tide in, so I couldn't drop down on the beach because it was underwater. And so very often, I, as I was walking back to my camp, I'm in, I'm walking through the thickest jungle around in, in South Central Alaska, and the forest is full of bears. Like, I can hear them popping their jaws at me, <laughs> growling at me, bluff charges, and I'm just... Ooh. I'm just focused on getting to my camp and I'm just, I just keep hiking and walking and I hear them and, and I'll just say, Hey bear, what's going on? And I'll just keep walking and they're just posturing around me and, and, uh, you know, you just got to keep your wits about you. Well, I saw the video that mm. you post that, or that your team posted recently, uh, bear comes into camp and you kind of did the same thing. Just this massive black bear. And yeah, he was big. That bear was big. I mean, just the head on that thing. What? Was it an old bear? I guess super old bear yeah i mean that's my estimation i'm um you know his uh, i i read one comment on my page somebody wrote wow that's a really big bear for being so young he doesn't have any scars on his face but but he was he he was a, a grizzled old bear yet is kind of cool he had he had a uh, pine tree pollen all over his face but he was an absolute massive massive bear i don't know what he would have weighed but he's you know, north of 400, maybe low 500, something like that. But it's an absolute tank of a black bear. Massive, massive animal. And, and he was really cool, too. So that was a totally unique instance. Uh, we were all in the cabin getting ready to preparing dinner. And he came, and one of the guys saw him and, and kind of freaked out, you know. And this kid's like, oh, my, oh my God. And, and um, this one of, the, one of our guys was down on the dock fishing. And so this, this kid yelled at the window, like, you got to get in a boat and run away. And I said, no, 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 just calm down, calm down. Like, he doesn't have to get in a boat and drive to the other side of the lake. I said, let me, let me go outside and, and we'll have a little chit-chat with this bear. And so I went outside. And, and uh, it's funny, the first time I came around the corner and started clapping at him, he just looked at me like, what, yeah. Yeah. Wh- what do you want, man? And so and the thing that I was nervous about, you can see, you can hear my voice raise, and you can hear me clapping when he starts to come around to that little area. Well, the thing I didn't want is there was grease in that area because the people that were there before us had cooked all their fish right there. So he was coming in to get the grease, and I just, I had no idea if he had been there before, if this was his first time, if he was a, a serial camp raider. And so I wanted to scare him from getting that grease because oftentimes, you know, they have this little saying in Alaska, fed bear is a dead bear, mm-hmm. because if he starts coming and, and harassing this cabin, even though we're in a provincial park and it's illegal to kill bears there, very likely he might find himself dead um, if the wrong guy's there camping, if somebody's really afraid of bears. So I, that's why I had this little heightened excitement in my voice when he got there. And then when he turned, he kind of ran away. We went out there, and me and uh, uh, the guy that I was with, Austin, he was the one shooting the photographs. We got to 10 yards from him, mm-hmm. and he just sat there. It, it, Austin was down on his knees filming. I was standing right next to Austin. He's at 10 yards, this bear. He's just staring at us. But he had all the confidence in the world, right? He was just sitting there, and, and um, he didn't want to leave. He wanted to come and eat. He didn't like us there. you know. And, and he very well could have charged and attacked us, but I was just looking at his face, reading his body language, and he, you know, he, he really didn't want to be there with us outside and, and uh, what what we didn't capture, and it was really funny, kind of reminded me of a kid, is when he finally turned and left, he walked away with his ears tucked back, which is a great indication that he was super upset. Uh-huh. And with each step, he just smashed his foot into the ground <laughs> like a toddler. Just literally, both his front feet and his back feet, he just 
<laughs> and he just it, it was it was actually pretty charming it made us actually giggle out loud yeah because um, he literally just walked away like a to- toddler might if, if you didn't buy him a toy just stomping his feet as hard as he could it amazes me the similarities i've got a i've got a six-year-old black lab and like there's times where you know the jealousy that you see in animals or like you said the throwing of a fit or you know we've got a big trip mm-hmm. coming up so we're we're starting to prepare for uh we got a little vacation coming up, and he like you can tell he knows, so he's starting to uh, kind of be a little bit more clingy. But it, it's so funny, wild animals, and uh, some of the similarities that they have between you know us and kids. It's just it's astonishing. Absolutely, and and you know a few years ago, so I started. I never took a gun with me. A few years ago, um, we were going up to Arctic Circle for twenty two days, twenty three days, and I had the whole. We had the whole crew with us. And I said, my favorite bear gun, a lot of guys like to take big pistols and big rifles. My favorite bear gun, hands down, is a 12-gauge slug gun pump. Yeah. Hands down. And with a short barrel, an extended tube if you want. Um, I generally don't take an extended tube because of the weight, but you fill that thing with slugs. Um, any man, woman, or child can literally pick that thing up and and, uh, and operate it and shoot it relatively accurately. And and um, and so I, I, I brought one on this trip, and... And we were filming this massive, <clears throat> excuse me, these two massive bull moose were fighting, and we were filming them fight. And I had forgotten some stuff back at camp, or I wanted to grab something, some additional food or something, because we were going to trek further. I forget what it was, but I was going back to camp for a resupply. So I told the crew, I said, hey, you guys keep filming. I'm going to go back to the teepee, grab some more stuff, and I'll see you guys later. And uh, I'll catch up with you later. And so I went back to the teepee. And while I'm at the TV, I see this massive grizzly bear, this big boar, and he's walking on the hillside next to my TV. He's probably a quarter of a mile away. And I'm just looking at him through my binos, and I'm appreciating him. He's just a handsome, handsome bear. And it was a little bit windy that day, and you could just see his, his fur was just folding back and forth, just swirling around in the wind. It was just beautiful. And, and then all of a sudden, he turns for no reason, and he just starts walking down into this little ravine, a big ravine, actually, just adjacent to my camp. And so I see him go down there and I thought, man alive, he's probably going down there to get water. And then he's either going to head upstream or downstream. That's what I figured is there's alders down there. Bears like to be down there in the alders. They like to be near the water. But I said, I'm going to hang out here for 30 minutes. Just see what he does. Lo and behold, of course, here he comes up my side of the hill. He's walking right at the teepee. Mm-hmm. He has no idea it's there. I have the wind. Mm-hmm. Actually, the wind is coming off of my left shoulder and it's traveling it's my left to right and he's walking straight at me and so as he's getting closer and closer he halves that distance and he halves that distance and so finally i said i gotta make him aware of my presence but i stand up and i say hey bear what's going on he pops up on his rear feet and he's looking at me he has his front paws folded down he's just staring at me and i'm thinking any second he is going to drop down and just hightail it out of here uh-huh. and he drops down, and he just starts running right at me. Oh. And it's not its not a, a, a dead sprint, but he's hes just sprinting right at me. He's just running right at me, not, not sprinting, not charging, but he's now curious as to what I am. And so I'm sitting there, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, um, you know, what, what my next move is, because I don't want him to get to the teepee. I don't, all of our food is in the teepee that, you know, where we are, there's no trees for, um, hanging food in or keeping food out of their, 
out of their uh, realm. So, you know, I don't want him to find the teepee because if he finds the teepee, even if I scare him away, he's very likely going to come back at another time right. and, uh, and ransack our camp. So I, so with the wind coming off my left shoulder, heading to my right, I just ran right at him and literally sprinted at him. He's, <laughs> he's running at me. I'm sprinting at him. But as I'm sprinting at him, I'm starting to quarter to my left because what I want to do is give him my wind but I have to get to him before my wind will get will hit my shoulder and get to him, and of and of course as I as I'm reaching him, he's looking at me. I'm looking at him, and all of a sudden my wind is actually correctly now going from me to him, and he turned inside out. And I mean, <laughs> literally, he, he might as well have seen the Grim Reaper. He turned and ran as fast as he could away from me, and I watched him run up and over three different hills just disappearing in the distance and he kept looking over his rear shoulder over his shoulder looking behind him and i mean he, he's absolutely terrified do you have to clean your shorts after that because i would no i i didn't but again that's just one of those things where you kind of read them you kind of figure it out and and um and you and you hope for the best i almost had to clean my shorts out when you were talking about walking through the woods bear 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 uh, earlier what a, one one of your pictures that really intrigued me was the one with you the mountain lion over your shoulders in the snow sure what's the story on that there has to be a hell of a story because it's a hell of a picture yeah it's 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 uh it's kind of a cool story it's kind of a cool story um because i didn't i didn't know what to do but we we did that hunt um i don't know if you guys read all the all the details about that hunt but i never wanted to to hunt lions i never wanted to be a lion hunter and and I had nothing against houndsmen or hunting with hounds, but it just didn't seem like it was for me, not something that I wanted to try. And then a, a very good friend of mine purchased an area in British Columbia uh, to primarily hunt bighorn sheep, but he also has black bears, mountain lions, and he has some mule deer. And um, and so he was going to start doing some lion hunts, and he had actually went and met with a biologist in the area, and they said, um, we really want you to um uh to remove some lions from your area and so and he had planned on doing lion hunts anyway but um he was strongly encouraged after he talked to the biologist so he called me and said hey do you want to come up for a lion hunt and i said no and he said are you sure man he said that you know you're you're kind of you're not against it but isn't something that you want to do but you have you know maybe you should try it and that way you can speak to it and i said you know that's a good point you know i i, I will and and he had to remove lines anyway, so I went up there and did a lion hunt. And it was it was quite fascinating. We stalked that lion for a long, long ways. We, you know, this was a lion that he had notoriously been finding uh, because he had torn a torn a pad on his on his back foot. And so every time we saw his track, every time Ben saw his track, there was a little blood spot in it. And so we we followed this lion for kilometers, man. We followed him. I forget how far we went now, but it was over twenty kilometers that we followed him. And we followed him without dogs because it was so where we were hunting had so many cliffs that the dogs would have would have fallen to their death. So we had to follow him on our own, and it was treacherous for us um, in and of itself. And so we we just picked our way along. Lo and behold, he ended up turning to the north, and he ended up going up into the mountains, up into the um, up into the bush, into the forest. And so we did get we did get hounds on him at a certain point in the afternoon about the last hour, hour and a half of the, of the evening. And, and the hounds treat him once. And it was quite fascinating to me because I'd always thought that the lions were afraid of the dogs. 
and I'd always thought that it was going to be a very stressful situation for the lion up in the tree while the dogs were barking at him on the bottom. You know, I've seen videos and pictures of them snarling. And, and then when I got to the tree, which was, which, and I know hunters like to justify um, their kills and they like to justify the ethics of it um, by saying it was very, very hard. It was super hard. And, and um, it wasn't very hard. It was very hard tracking him through the snow and it was very physical getting up to the top of the mountain. But you know, that's just a, that's just a barrier of entry of being a hunter and so I, when we finally got to him, and it was it was steep, we had to go like a thousand vertical feet, knee deep snow. Uh, it took quite a bit of time. We're we're booking because we were chasing daylight. And when we finally got to him, that big tomcat was just sitting up in that tree. A few of the dogs were barking at him, but he just sat up there like like you would see a house cat on a windowsill. Just all the confidence of the world mm-hmm. standing there, bigger than life. And I just thought, man, a lie. Like he's so confident and. And uh, the dogs were more of an annoyance than anything to him. And, and, uh, and lo and behold, we got up there. He ended up jumping out of that tree right down into the dogs, ran down the mountain and, and got up in another tree and the dogs got on him again. And we went down there and we ended up shooting him, um, and killing him. And then when we got to him, I'll be honest with you, when I got to him, he was laying there in the snow and, and this didn't matter to me. The only thing that mattered to me was I wanted to shoot a Tom because I had read how their reproductive rates can be quite slow, and so you want to be careful how many females you remove from an area. So I knew I wanted to remove a tom, because they're the ones that are really putting, both both females and males are putting pressure on sheep and deer herds, but really the um, big toms are the ones that are putting tremendous pressure on these on these herds of ungulates. And so um, I wanted to remove, a, if I was going to kill one, I want to shoot a big tom. And Ben even told me, he said, hey, when we get one in the tree, if it's not the right one for you or, or you decide you don't want to do it, um, you don't have to kill one. I just want you to come up here and experience the hunt. And if you don't want to kill it, we're going to kill it because we need to remove some lines anyway. And if it's a big old tom, we're, we're going to shoot it. And so I said, that's fine. Well, so when I got up there, I thought this animal's going to lose its life anyway. I've done the whole hunt up till here. I might as well complete it. Um, and so I ended up shooting the line, killing it. And then we got down to it. It was pretty um, anticlimactic. This cat was laying dead, and oftentimes when you approach a, a dead animal, um, sometimes there can be, you know, there, there's there's this sorrow, and th- you have this excitement of success, and you have this, you know, adrenaline pumping through you if you kill a big buck or a big bull or even a big bear or whatever. But you, you, you know, you kind of get up there and. And, um, and this lion looked really diminutive to me. It was laying in the snow. Most of it was covered with snow. And it didn't even look like the lion that I, I had just seen in the tree. And, right. and I, wa- I wondered if it was because it was now lifeless, if I had re- because I removed the life from it and, and kind of, if you will, let the air out of this animal, that, that it, was, it was quite a bit smaller. And so I was sitting there and I was filming this. We were filming this with my crew from Sigmanta. And then a friend of ours named Sam Soholt. Do you guys know Sam? Yes, sir. We had him on the podcast uh, about two or three weeks ago. Yep. Awesome, awesome guy. Yeah, Soulful he is. man. Yep. Really awesome dude. And Sam's standing right next to me. And I said, well, now what in the world do we do with this thing? Like, I knew we were going to eat it. I knew we were going to take its skin and its skull because it's, you know, it was a fascinating piece of the animal. And I knew we were going to eat the whole animal because I'd heard how much lion meat was good. And we're just sitting there kind of looking at this animal, and I thought, how are we going to do this thing justice with photos and do this thing justice with film? 
it looked so diminutive and covered with snow. Yeah. And Sam just, Sam was just so casual. And I looked back at him and he just looked at me and it, it was getting dark out and big snowflakes are coming down. And Sam just looked at me and said, you know, the old timers carried them out. <laughs> and, and, and it just hit me. And I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, the old time lion hunters, that's how they got them out is after they'd kill them, they'd carry them out. I was like, that's what we're going to do, man. There you that, go. That's how it goes. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. How heavy was he? Um, he was somewhere north of 180 pounds. That's a big cat. Ooh. That's insane. Yeah, it was a big cat. That's a big cat. Yeah. You know, I get that way. You know, you talk about kind of anticlimactic. Um, I'm not a big game hunter. It's it's in the middle of waterfowl season, and that's where our bread is buttered here. But with turkeys, I get that way. You know, you got the chase, oh, sure. and then it's kind of back and forth. And then when you when you pull the trigger – and you walk up on it, well, you're just kind of like, well, all right, that's over with now. Tag you know, and, and you kind of, you kind of feel empty because that's that's kind of the 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 least exciting part of the hunt, and that's what I try to tell so many people that listen to this podcast. It's like pulling the trigger is number one; it's the easiest thing that you can do on the hunt, and I mean, mm-hmm. really, it just it it pales in comparison to the to everything that led up to that moment. Yeah, absolutely. particularly with a turkey, right? Yeah. Because they are so ornate, mm-hmm. and they're putting on such a display of of um, biology for you and for their girls, whether it be a fake girl in the form of a decoy or real hens. The the dance they do, the gobbles, the drumming, the spitting, the whole the colors of them changing the the wavelengths of their of the blood in their head to go from red to white to blue. I mean, they are putting on. They are one of the most underrated animals in North America, and I and I say this with tongue in cheek, but um, you know, hunting TV has kind of ruined the wild turkey because so many people do TV shows and videos and films on on hunting the wild turkey that we we kind of take it for granted. But still, to this day, when I see a tom full strut in the corner of a farm field, you know, you see a big red barn, a silo, you see a hardwood ridge, and a nice beautiful green field and you see this big tom out there full strut like it just takes me back to uh photographs and paintings that i'd seen in books that my father owned from the 1920s 30s 40s 50s and of course turkeys have become a resounding comeback from those times but it's just it's just an incredible animal and and to me they they represent an imagery of a farmland country that is hard to hard to uh compare to what was their population way back then? I, I know they were very doing very very poorly in, as far as population. Yeah, and I and I wouldn't even know off the top of my head. I know there was you know obviously there are little pockets that were doing really well, but the majority of of in the United States, like it was you know it was very very limited. And um, and then through reintroduction, you know they found out that the eastern I think primarily the eastern wild turkey has done you know, incredibly well spreading itself north. And then now I know um, I did a keynote speech up in Ontario a few years ago for the Federation of Fish and Wildlife, which is the largest conservation group in Ontario or in, actually in all of Canada, I believe. And I I talked to the board um, for that federation and they were just, they had just, they were in their second or third year of their first turkey seasons. And those guys, man, did they have it bad. They loved turkey hunting, and that's all they wanted to talk about. They hunt mule deer, they hunt moose, 
they hunt black bears, they catch giant pike and walleyes and lake trout, but all they wanted to talk about was turkey hunting. Yeah, it it's it truly is it, it's a fascinating sport. Jeff here doesn't like it. He he got a bad experience, but if you can ever get on a good <laughs> one, you'll never I mean, everything else is just kinda because it's what, what it's, do you mean what do you mean a bad experience? I didn't let him shoot a Jake. I, I, he doesn't have patience. I don't, he doesn't have patience, Donnie. I don't, Donnie. I don't really care about shooting much anything other more other than field mallards or widgeons in the field. I don't. Yeah. I, I've been in the hunt business for thirty years. I just don't. I like to look at animals. I love to see them. I just don't get excited about shooting hardly anything other than field ducks. Well, there's not. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And my wife. She says, hey, Andy wants to take you hunting. You need to go. He's your son. You need to go hunt with him. This means a lot to him. So I went, and we were there 20, 30 minutes, and this turkey comes, and he calls these turkeys up, and he's all he's kind of points at me, and I can't move. I don't know what the hell's going on. And I look over, and there's a turkey. They came from behind us, and they gobbled. And I, so like I'm like, you know, get ready, get ready. So I was ready, and then he wouldn't let me shoot, and then well, they left. And came I was, out, and they were Jakes. I'm not going to let him shoot a Jake because that's next year's Tom. Well, and that's yeah, right. Right. So, so when they walk away, Jeff was like this. Well, we can go home now. Yeah, I like. <laughs> so you guys do mostly waterfalling. Yes, sir. Yes, and I chase tornadoes, and in the spring during turkey season, I would rather chase tornadoes than go chase a turkey. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love I love waterfalling as well. I I have that I have that. Um, I don't know, some people call it, you know, an obsession, an addiction, whatever you want to call it, but I'm, I love deer hunting, I love mountain hunting, I love bass fishing, I love saltwater fly fishing, I love tornadoes of mallards in North Dakota, honkers, spring snows, I've got issues, major, major issues. So you can pretty much uh, keep yourself busy in the outdoors 12 months out of the year. Oh yes, I could, I could be gone um, literally could be gone the entire year. And there's, I'm very particular of the things that I do. I'm not one of these people that just likes to travel around and touch everything a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if I'm, I love adventure. So if I'm going to hunt, I'll give you a, for instance, if I'm going to hunt spring snow geese, I would enjoy doing it in North Dakota. I would enjoy doing it in South Dakota or Nebraska or Missouri. One of those, I would, I would enjoy that, but I would far more enjoy going up to like none of us. Mm-hmm. territory in the arctic and actually getting them coming into their nesting grounds and you know having to take three or four bush flights to get into an area and then having to hike you know another 10 or 15 20 miles to get into the area where we're going to hunt i would much prefer that over uh you know hunting ag fields here in the in the midwest or in the corridor of the united states i just like adventure and i like far off places well me and you have absolutely zero in common on that shit that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> now i want to ask you this though you said you ate the cougar what did it taste like well it's fantastic it was like it was it was it was like a very rich very flavorful pork really i've heard the indians yeah, love it, went, it it was fantastic it was it, if i had to rate I've eaten a lot of wild game, as you can imagine, lots mm-hmm. of pheasants, turkeys, ducks, deer, elk, moose, uh, you know, just about sheep, just about everything you can imagine. I've eaten alligators and, and lots of varieties of fish. And I would, I would say lion is, um, you know, top two or three right there, maybe even number one. Now, is that dependent um, on their diet, on what they've been eating leading up to that, or are all of them 
going to be delicious. That I have no idea, although I would assume all of their diets are nearly identical, right? I would, it's yeah. either white-tailed deer, mule deer, bighorn sheep, elk. Like they're, It's almost always going to be something in the, the ungulate family, um, by and large anyway. And so, um, and it's funny because when, when I got there, I'd asked the houndsman, you know, I said, hey, have you eaten lion before? Oh, yeah, 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 I've eaten it before. And then I, you know, talked to some of the guides and stuff like that. I'm like, you guys eaten lion before? And Ben, the guy that owns the area, he's like, no, I've, I've never eaten it before. And one of the other guides said, yeah, yeah, I've eaten it, you know. And and then we killed it. And, you know, I started kind of harvesting the meat from it. And, you know, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, we're taking the meat from it, you know. And they're like, well, you're just going to take a little bit and eat it. And I said, no, we're taking the whole thing, man. We're taking back straps. We're going to take the four quarters. We're taking the inner loins. Uh, we're taking it all. And so we took it all and it was hilarious because I could tell when I asked them all and I run into this all the time, mm-hmm. I could tell that they really had never eaten it. They said, <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've eaten it. But I could tell by the looks on their faces and how they, their body, I could tell they'd never eaten it. Yeah. And so, so we first took the back straps and cut them up into little medallions. We seasoned them all up a little bit of olive oil. And we, uh, and we seared them on the grill. We cooked them on the grill. And cats can have trichinosis in their, in their flesh, which is a parasite. So you have to cook it. Um, you don't have to cook it nearly as well done as some, some people think. Mm-hmm. Um, you just cook it medium rare and it will get rid of the trichinosis. So we cooked these little medallions medium rare. And they didn't even, they didn't even make it from the front porch of the cabin. And this is February, right? This is in August. We're all hanging out there. We're all sitting out there but it didn't even make it from the grill to the kitchen table before it was gone. Really? Yes. And then we cooked two of big roasts from the hind quarters and we cooked two roasts from the lion and then a roast from, um, a bighorn sheep, which is very good eating. And about three quarters of the way through dinner, the lion was gone. There was still plenty of sheep left. And people were awkwardly, you know, that that kind of awkwardness when you get down to one piece of pizza. Yeah, like who's going to have it? Yeah, so there was this awkwardness of people during conversation. People kept standing up and kind of <laughs> looking in the roaster pot in the middle, and they take that spoon that has the, the holes in it, you know, and they scrape it through the gravy and the carrots and potatoes, kind of looking for more lion. There's a big chunk of bighorn sheep right in front of them. But they're scooping all around that, looking for more line. And then when they wouldn't find it, they would just sit back down. And I, I was taking notice of all this. It was really charming. And then one of the other guides that had said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've eaten line before. He asked if he could take the rest of my lion home to his family um, so that he could share it with them. And I said, of course you can. Yeah, that'd be honored. And so we, we sat there and processed the whole thing, packaged it all up, vacuumed, sealed it cleaned it off, got it all, got it all prepared for his family. And then he took it home. And I mean, just a few days later, he sent me pictures of his entire family sitting down and, and eating this line. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And this line, the line that I killed, that was another thing is, you know, after we killed him, I, I kind of asked some of these guys, I said, Hey, how old do you think this line is? Oh, I think he's six or seven, something like that. Well, you know, we went to the, we took his, took him to the biologist and he was, I forget right now off the top of my head, but he wasn't even three years old. Really? Yes, and this thing was massive. Yeah. But it's just inc- crazy how quickly they can grow, and and uh, it's very easy to tell a lion's age because they get these they get these um, perfect indents on their canine teeth, 
and it's basically like if they have one indent, they're you know one and a half years old. They get mm-hmm. two indents at two and a half years old, and then the indents get closer together after that. It's kind of like rings of a tree, but it's very. And then their their um, medial and lateral incisors get get certain shapes to them that indicate their age, and it's very easy to tell the age of a lion. And so it was remarkable. Um, you know, the houndsman was kind of calling him to be six or seven. And really, the biologist is like, no, he's he's in between two and three years old. There's something like that. I don't think he was quite three. Now, do you think he would have gotten bigger if he'd have gotten three or four years older? <laughs> or do you think 180, he's maxed out? I think he would have gotten bigger, right? But but um, fraction. You know, he, he may, have, may have gotten to 190, maybe even 200 pounds. But um, you'll hear these. You know, you'll, you'll hear this from hunters all the time, and I don't mean to keep throwing hunters under the bus, but you hear stories of 350-pound deer, and whether it be a whitetail or a mule deer, you hear stories of, you know, you just hear people love to um, exaggerate on weights of animals. Even okay. even you guys as waterfowlers, yeah. uh, um, oftentimes you'll shoot a giant cannon, and guys are like, oh, it's an 18-pound bird. No, it's an 11-pound bird, but he looks <laughs> like he's 18 pounds. <laughs> yeah. When you have you to know, carry like, him for a mile, he weighs 18 pounds, but he's really not. Yeah, exactly right. Like, you shoot a giant Canada, it's really easy to look at that and say, man, that's a 20-pound bird. <laughs> but you throw that thing on a you throw that thing on a scale, and you're like, oh, yeah. it's 14 pounds or 15 pounds, something like that, which is still a massive animal, but you, but you get my drift. And so, um, but you'll hear guys talking about cougars that are 250 or maybe even 300 pounds. And mm. I talked to the biologist that was there and i'm not saying that bc has the biggest lions but they have big lions and i think he was saying that the heaviest one that he had ever weighed was like 205 or 206 something like that and um coincidentally so that lion was also under three years of age huh you know you're talking yep. about the way hunters and but we get we do uh wild pig hunts in the springtime quite a bit and that mm-hmm. we run into that a lot like uh a guy will shoot a pig and then bring it back, and you know we're starting to do the butchering process. Now, like, how much do you think that weighs? And an average pig out here is one eighty to two twenty-five, kind of in that range. That's a big pig. That's a very big pig, and that and that's you know that's a handful if you're by yourself trying to load it up. And I'll tell them, yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, that's probably two hundred, two fifteen. Oh no, no, that's two seventy-five, easy. I'm like, no, I, I, that that's 215. <laughs> you know, I I do this quite often. Yeah, that's 215. Yeah. But it, it's just a it's an ego thing, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I I killed. A, I was with a buddy of mine. We were in Alberta several years ago, and he killed a monster bear. I mean, this thing was an absolute giant, uh, big chocolate face bear. If I if I had to give you an honest guess of live weight, I'd say you know. And and I'm going to give you a hundred pound swing because really it's bigger, bigger. But I would say he was between 450 and 550 pounds. This bear. That's a big bear. And it was a massive bear. And so when we got him back to camp, I went to went to our other friend who was running the camp, and I said, "Hey man, where, uh, where's your scale?" Because I knew he had a scale, and I was like, "Where's your scale?" And he's like, "Oh, I got rid of it." I said, "You got rid of your scale? I really want to see what this bear was going to weigh." Because we were actually because we went back on four wheelers we were able to actually load this bear up whole onto a four-wheeler, load him back into the pickup truck. You know, this is a rarity. In my world, this is extremely rare. Most of the animals that I hunt, I have to cut up, remove their entire hide, and take two or three trips to backpack them out. Right. And so I really wanted to get a weight on him and just kind of see where I was at in my estimation. 
and you know our other friend Chris, he he said I I got rid of my scale, and I said why why in the world did you get rid of your scale? Why wouldn't you love to have this information? And he said, man, because people guys would shoot bears, and he'd go pick them up, and they'd be grinning ear to ear, oh. and just like the pig story you just said, yeah. he'd say, man, you got a massive bear, and they're like, yeah, I think he's like. 350, 400 pounds, and, he, and Chris knew in his mind, he's like, oh, it's like 200 pounds, but mm-hmm. that's a massive bear. Like, that's an awesome, awesome bear. And then they'd get back to camp, and these guys would be high-fiving, smiling, taking photos, you know, celebrating, loving life, and they'd throw their bear on the scale, and he's like, literally the joy and happiness of, you know, and I'm sure it's our machoism, it's our egos, it's our pride of wanting to be successful and wanting to you know, accomplish a fantastic feat. But, you know, that number 218 or 220 would pop up on a scale, and he said, completely deflate these guys. The that's, rest of their hunt would be completely ruined. That's sad. And so he just said, I'm getting rid of that scale, man. I'm getting yeah. rid of it. You you know, and, and then he'd go pick guys up, and he'd say, yeah, how big do you think that bear is? And he, Chris would say, oh, how big do you think it is? I think it's 400 pounds. Man, you're good at this. That's an <laughs> awesome guess. Uh, you are good at this, yeah. you know, and. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, and you can't fault hunters, right? We want to, you know, we want, we want to shoot a, a 2000 pound moose when really we're probably shooting like a 1400 pound moose and we want to shoot, you always hear a thousand pound brown bears. And I don't think there's been very many brown bears ever that have reached a thousand pounds. You know, it's probably a lot of 800 pounders and things like that, but I don't think there's been a whole lot of thousand pound brown bears, you know? So we, we're all guilty of it. That's for sure. What, what's the that, that you said the mountain lion's one of the best things. What's the worst thing you've eaten in the woods? Um, I the, the absolute worst thing, and I can't even tell you what it was. But the absolute worst thing is I I ate some species of fish, and and I'll give you another example too. Um, I've I've eaten some species of fish in Bangladesh when we were in the jungle. Um, that we would that we would um get from some local fishermen that we'd find in the jungle and they honestly like they we'd cook them and prepare them and they honestly tasted like you're eating aspirin Ooh. <laughs> like very very bitter very granular tasting that was the best thing that i could that i could kind of represent that and to be honest with you this is going to sound like a very trivial answer but probably the worst thing i've ever eaten as far as wild game goes is poorly prepared wild game well, yeah, to be honest with you, you because because I'll, I'll tell you this, and I'm being straight with you, and you guys might disagree with me, but um, several years ago, and I'm talking when I was just out of high school, I accidentally, I was on a bluebill hunt, and you guys know what bluebills are, obviously. Mm-hmm. We try not and, to shoot um, them here. Was, okay, right on, right on. <laughs> um, and, and so I was on a bluebill hunt in northern Minnesota, and I accidentally had a miss, I had a morning of fog, and I had a misidentification party, and I shot a few um, regansers. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, my buddies were like, those are unedible. You can't eat those. They're mud docks. And I was like, okay, well, I have to eat them. I killed them, so I'm eating them. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they were uh, filet, but, you know, I, I ca- cleaned them up, cut them up. I marinated them up. I seasoned them up. I seared them in a bunch of oil, and I put them over some fried eggs and some fried potatoes, and I ate them, and they were great. They were they were completely great. Now, do I want to um, do I want to pluck a merganser and put it in my oven and bake it and eat it as a whole bird? Maybe not. But I, the way I prepared them and frying them in a little bit of butter and oil and seasoning them up and putting them with fried eggs and potatoes, they're fantastic. Mm. 
Ain't no I, way. I don't know about that. <laughs> you're, you're a bigger man than I am. I don't like duck anyways, and I just mm. – See, he, he, but how do you prepare your when you get when you get ducks? How do you prepare? Do you put a lot of stuff on it, or do you just kind of throw it on the grill and then take it off? Me? Yep. Um, both ways. Like um, I've done it a number of ways, but very often, you know, probably the most common way is is uh, searing it in butter mm-hmm. with uh, salt and pepper on it, as simply as salt and pepper, some garlic, searing it in butter, and and I eat the heck out of duck, man. I love it. See, Jeff's dad cooked duck, but he'd overcook it a lot, and he just oh. had, he just had some bad experiences. It was horrible. He baked it, and it was dry, and oh, oh, that's tough. Oh, that's was, a tough, that's a tough road to hoe, man. Mm, it just was not good. And you're right on that deal because I see the you don't see it as much today as you used to. But I'm 51 years old, and when I was a, a junior high, elementary, high school, you would see people driving from Colorado and they'd be coming back in October from elk hunting and you'd see a big old bull elk strapped on somebody's truck or something and they've been driving with that thing for 12 or 14 hours and then they'd get home and they'd be like, hey, it just don't really taste good. Well, fuck, you you cook the damn thing the whole way home. And just, yeah. they, they, you don't take care of the meat and so taking care of your meat damn sure makes your, your wild game taste better. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely, and we've had. I've been in camps where guys said that bear was unedible, and we 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 ended up killing a bear one time that was super old, a uh, super 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 old. And when we when we took his hide off, his you know his flesh was slimy, his fat was yellow, and you know, and there were worms and oh. and there's all all this stuff. And I said, hey, we're gonna cook this bear. And the guy said, Ab- oh, <laughs> please, absolutely not. I said, no, we're going to cook this bear. And so we did. We broke it down. We got some roast out of it. We made some steaks out of it. We seasoned it up. We coated it in, in uh, avocado oil. We seared it at all sides. We seasoned it all up. We baked it all day with vegetables, and, and, and we, made a, uh, we made a rub, and then we made a brine. And... Um, and we served it that night at a dinner party. There were girls there and, and a bunch of guys there and and uh and it was uh it was gone in in minutes, man. And this was that old, gnarly, yellow, stinky old bear and people were asking what we were eating and we were telling them this old, stinky old bear and these girls that were there, I mean, I'm not talking about wilderness girls, I'm talking about some of these girls were models, mm-hmm. like fashion models. And they couldn't eat the bear fast enough and wanted seconds and wanted to know if we were going to be preparing bear the next night. <laughs> Isn't that insane? So it's, it's all in how you prepare it, man. It's all in how you treat it, like you said, not driving it home. Right. And it's all in how you prepare it. Were you hanging out with supermodels at a hunting camp at? <laughs> uh, a buddy of mine, his wife, is a, uh, she's a fashionista, if you will. That, but you're so right. And you said this in, in, in one of your videos, you know, if a lot of these people, if a lot of these anti-hunters would ever just give it a shot and kind of get out of their own head on what they think hunting is, they would probably enjoy it. Yeah, man, absolutely. And if, if you took them, like if you took someone, let's say for ease of conversation, I'll just pick on this organization or I'll just pick on, you know, I don't, a lot of people say, well, vegetarians, well, vegetarians are fine people. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. There's nothing even wrong with being a vegan. I think you're... I think with veganism, I think your 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 mind has, 
like you've just went so far down a road like you went a little bit down a road and you liked it yeah so you just went so much further down a road and then once you go so far down that road it just doesn't make sense because of you know the factory farming that has to happen to supply vegans with soy for all of their different products and mm-hmm. and the chemicals that go into those crops and the 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 animals that get killed in the formation of those crops and the wild areas that get turned on their heads in order to make room for those crops like no one can hold their head high as reducing their footprint it's nearly impossible i don't care what you eat but if you were to take someone let's just say lack of a better term, somebody that's an anti-hunter against hunting. I, I was going to say somebody from PETA or, or a vegan, but let's just say an, an anti-hunter. Let's, because it's so much easier to identify people in, in that manner. And I hate even building these walls between it's us or them because most of it's just misinformation. And people people love to hang their hats in a particular camp Yeah, when there's a whole bunch of different areas and information that goes on in between. But if you took someone who was against hunting and I took them out into the wilderness... And we had very little or no food at all. And we were camping. And I said, hey, we we need to hike from here to there. And we're going to do it over the next 30 days. And we have very little food or no food. And we have to work for our water. And we have to work for our berries. And we have to work for our meat. Um, they might be stubborn for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 days. But after that, I arrow grouse and I break it down and I have it in the teepee and we're putting it in some butter and we're frying it over our wood stove. Like the value of that, uh, just encapsulates your mind and, Mm -hmm. and it's soul food. It literally is filling your soul with, with creativities and openness that your mind can just flourish because this is what we were designed to be as human beings. This is really who we are. And so when you're doing these things, like, and, and even if they could stay steadfast to their, call it their ethics for 10 days or 20 days or 30 days, at some point they're going to break down. Sure. You know, when we were, when we were hunters and gatherers, and even when we were prairie men, when we, even when we were expanding across the, the North American, we were exploring our world, there was not a single vegan, not a single vegetarian, not a single anti-hunter. That comes, all of those distinctions come from protection. They come from this, mechanized society that has provided for us we no longer have to get our hands dirty to get food and so you know and and so if you had to get your hands dirty to get your food you don't have any negative stigmas around this it's only because you've been provided for that you've been able to kind of delve into your own morals and ethics and say no i'm gonna i'm gonna stand up on this soapbox and i'm gonna declare that i'm against this well the reason you're against it is because you don't have to do it Right. If yeah. you had to do it, you wouldn't be against it. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with doing it. You would, in fact, find fantastic intrinsic value in doing it, and you would find yourself to be twice as alive as you feel right now. So how do we go about bridging that gap between, you know, not to set up two different camps, us and them, but how do we bridge that gap between by, us by, and them? You know, by hunting really, really – you know, I, I say, you'll hear me say the phrase hunting well and good. And, and I think how we carry ourselves as hunters, whether we're in the woods, out of the woods, whether we're on camera, off camera, the respect that we have for wildlife, truly people like to throw around this word conservationist, but truly being a steward of the land and trying to leave things better than when you found it, truly walking tall and, and 
creating a stigma around a hunter that gets us back to being, uh, you know, there used to be a prestigious label for, for men and women was to be a hunter. And now it's this, now it's this negative stigma. So I think carrying yourself in such a manner, educating yourself, speaking intelligently, hunting with the highest of ethics, um, and being a steward of the land and then being willing rather than come up with all these stupid stickers that people put on their trucks and all this, and all these redneck kind of, um, um, you know, anecdotal little things like, Hey, I'm going to hunt the rest of my life. You don't like, you can kiss my ass. Mm -hmm. Like rather than going down that road, sitting down with somebody who's against hunting or doesn't quite understand hunting and say, Hey, can I answer some questions for you? And then, and then it's okay to not have all the answers. You know, when somebody, the first time somebody asked me, and it was from somebody from national geographic, uh, this woman, uh, she was, uh, African American woman from Southern California and she was working for National Geographic and she asked me, she said, you know, why do you hunt? I was like, oh, oh yeah, oh, um, and to me, like, as soon as she said, why do you hunt? To, to my, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is the easiest answer in the world. I can tell, I can tell anyone why I hunt with my eyes closed. And no. so I said, oh, why hunt? Oh, that's oh, it's super easy. I um, and then as I started looking into my brain, it's tough. I had no reason. Yep, I had nothing, literally nothing to tell this girl. And so I started kind of it t- and asked me to start asking myself difficult questions and big questions like, why do you hunt? Yeah, and what does hunting mean to you? And what does hunting mean to the wildlife? And what does hunting mean to the wild areas? So I started asking myself these difficult questions and we should be doing that about every aspect of our lives because it's going to make us better people. And we need to constantly be learning and constantly be adjusting and, and adapting. And, and, um, you know, hunters need to be stewards of the land above all else. We're the ones on the quote unquote, like front lines. We're the ones actually out in the field watching. Like you guys are waterfowlers. Who, who, who's the first one that's going to notice if, if duck and goose populations start to, um, drastically decline. You guys are right. That's what, that's why that's why Ducks Unlimited went after the, you know, the prairie bulls of whatever that was, 1920s or whatever, because they were realizing that the duck populations were taking drastic falls because prairie wetlands were being drained for, for farming and and whatever else. And so, um, you know, that's how we do it by carrying ourselves in, in higher regard and being, being as much reservers and and layman biologists uh, observers and layman biologists as anything else, and and educating ourselves so that we can have intelligent conversations with people that are uninitiated or don't know, and then also celebrating our lifestyle in a particular manner that makes it very difficult to to criticize. Like, there's people that are against hunting, and I'll sit down with any of them, and if they ask me why I hunt or why it is that I do this or that and the other thing, it's very easy for me to articulate it now. Now, they don't have to agree, but I can tell them, I can indicate to them what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and, and I think that's a really powerful thing. Back to what you said, you know, the, the why do you hunt? That is a very difficult question to answer. And I've, I answered, I never had to answer it before, but, um, I had, uh, a, a, a college professor in my, in my blind with me and, and he actually teaches, uh, he, he's a professor at Baylor university here in Texas. And, um, he actually teaches about hunting. It's a college course you can take at Baylor hats off to Baylor, but he wrote a book, uh, God, Nimrod and the world, I think it is. And, uh, it's all about hunting and, and, uh, and kind of how it pertains to the Bible. And he asked me that question, well, why do you do this? And, uh, you you know, he was kind of taking, he's a hunter, but he was kind of taking that, uh, antagonist role. And I was like, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the, it's the, uh, 
for a waterfowl hunter, it's the early morning, it's the setting up the decoys, it's the working the birds to a certain position and, and all that. And he's like, okay, well, then why do you need the gun to do that? And that just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I was like, well, son of a bitch, you got me. But it, it yeah, is. Yeah, everything, everything you just listed was just a mere symptom of hunting. That's not hunting. That's just a symptom. Those are, those are extras that you achieve when you're on the hunt. Exactly. So yeah. whenever you start having to look internally, like you said, on why do you hunt, it's actually a lot harder to answer than one might think. Because I thought I had a great answer. I thought I just laid it out there and, you know, kind of puffed up my chest to this college professor. And he's like, okay, well, why do you need a gun to do any of that? And I'm like, well, shit. That's a good yep. point. That's a good yes, point. Yes, and then, you know, and hunters like to, nowadays, hunters like to hang their hats on certain buzzwords, like being a conservationist. And mm-hmm. so they say, well, hunting is conservation. Well, okay, so you're telling me that if you guys don't shoot 20 gadwalls this year, that we're going to run into some sort of gadwall overpopulation? Is that what you're telling me? And, and that's not true at all, but what in a roundabout way, what we're talking about here is, appropriating certain dollars so they find themselves in the wilds. We're talking about being out in the fields, being in the wetlands, because if we're there, we care about them. If we're in there, we're using them, we're utilizing, we're present, we're learning about them, we're interested in them, we see issues that arise in them, we're engaging in them, we're, 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 we're there to make a difference, we're there to try to help and save it if we see an issue. And then, of course, we're excited about waterfowl season, we're excited about hunting season, so we want to improve our habitats, we want to see more ducks in the sky, we want to we want to uh, increase the, our own barrier of entry and our intrinsic value in being a hunter. So we pick up a shovel, we pick up a, a fire torch, we pick up a pickaxe, we pick up a chainsaw, and we change our environment to enhance wildlife because we've done so much damage as human beings. We're capable of fantastic good. We're, we're capable of fantastic damage and destruction. And so um, we have to offset all of these things, and we always have to constantly be better. And so that's, you know, it's one of the main benefits of being a hunter is it allows us to be on that front line and to learn what we're doing and and um and i have a new i have a line in the latest film that we just came out with the other side that says you can't save anyone or anything from too far a distance and and that's what i mean like you we i can't you and the three of us can't sit here and form an anti-hunting anti-elephant hunting coalition from texas and wisconsin and start a save the elephant fund and if we've never been to Botswana, right. how in the hell are we supposed to save the elephant in Botswana? Yeah. We don't even know what's going on. And so if you're trying to shut down hunting and you've never been, or you're trying to shut down usage in wild areas and you've never been, and you don't understand the engagement that's happening with hunters and biologists and, and game wardens and they, you're, like them shutting down grizzly bear hunting, literally, literally inner city, um, uh, metrosexuals, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, shut down grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia, you know, the two years ago. Mm-hmm. And th- most of these people have never even seen a bear, never seen these coastal grizzlies, have no idea the impact that they are now going to have on all the ungulates and other animals in the area where we were literally helping control grizzly populations by select killing, hunting and killing a few old boars. Literally now these people have it shut down and they may be beating their chest saying, hey, we just saved the grizzly bear because according to them, they've stopped hunting. And even more ridiculous than that, at first, all they did was stop 
the the take of the alleged trophy. So you could still kill a grizzly bear in BC, and you could take its meat, but you had to leave its hide and its skull, which sounds so asinine to me. Could you imagine that? Obviously, we live in different times, but could you imagine going to a Native American at the at the turn of the century or or even prior and saying, "Hey, you can kill this buffalo, but you can't take its hide or its bones." Yeah. Excuse me. I know you want to use this hide to sleep on, and I know you want to use this hide to to wrap your teepee, and I know you want to use this femur as a tool, but mm, that's unethical, so we just want you to take the meat. And then they, you know, and then they went on to say you can't take any of the bear products, you can't kill a bear at all. And here, I know what they're thinking. They're thinking they just stopped hunting. And that this area of BC, the whole the whole province of BC, is going to start trending towards harmony. Now we don't have these dirty, disgusting hunters out there with their rifles and their cigarettes and their pickup trucks shooting these bears down, gunning them down for some silly photo. Now we are trending this whole province towards harmony, and these bears can live out their lives in the wild. They can live long, successful lives, and everything's going to trend into this Disney-like state. Well, all they've done is removed the people that were literally making the biggest impact on the conservation and on the population of the animals in that area, the people that were on the front lines looking at these bears, learning about these bears, hunting these bears, and now they've removed us. So now literally, other than sightseers, which are few and far between, now there's nobody even there engaging with this with these bears and in this wild system. So now nobody's even there to care about it. Right, you know what I mean, and and there is no trend to harmony. The only way we're going to have harmony on Earth is if we get rid of human beings and and let the plants and the animals reclaim what this is, what the Earth is. But obviously, that's that's not going to happen. That's that's not realistic to think about. And so we have to do the best we can. Yeah, and, and you know another thing that I would challenge these the, these people that that shut down the hunting is is watch how a bear attacks a, a deer. It's a it's a violent it's violent. It is a violent death. Of course, of course. I mean, it yeah. is, it is not it is not this picturesque Disney type you know scenario where all the creatures in the wild are, are living in harmony amongst one another. Like if there's too many bears, it's going to be violent for everything below them on the food chain. It's going to be a violent. Oh, death. and 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 them and them because if sure. a bear if a bear can't find a deer to eat, he eats a bear. Right. And actually, even when a bear can find a bear to eat, he eats a bear. Yeah. That's, that's how it works, you know. There, there's, there's, um, there, there's, it, they're fighting for their lives on every little bit, and so that, yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, you watch some of these, you know, you used to watch nature shows when you were a kid, and you know the cheetah would chase the impala, and you, and you'd see him kind of pounce on him, and then mm-hmm. the camera would move mm-hmm. to some birds flushing into the sky, and you never really got to see it. Well, now with these million dollar cameras and shows like Planet Earth and shows like Africa and the Blue Earth and Blue Planet and like well, you are seeing not only the vicious nature of a crocodile taking an animal down as it crosses the river, but you're also seeing lions come away from Cape Buffalo with broken jaws mm-hmm. and their rib cages and flaps of skin hanging down and chunks of their gut from being gored, being dragged behind them. This lion isn't off to urgent care. Right. He's not walking into no. the ER to get some morphine and to get all of this buttoned up. Right. Mm-hmm. He is going to walk off into the night tonight with a broken jaw, six feet of his small intestine dragging behind him, and 24 inches of his flap of skin hanging down, while the other lions are looking at him now going, yeah, I bet you're going to die soon, Mm -hmm. and when you do, we're going to eat you, or tonight we might just, if we're starving enough, 
we realize that you're now knocked down. I'm a younger male. I'm a subordinate male. I want to breed all these females. I have this idea of, of reproductive success has now slipped into my mind. I'm going to kill you till I eat you. And like, this is, this is the reality. And I'm not saying that we are justified as hunters to be bringing the game down so it doesn't have to suffer the fate of other wildlife. This is just, we are part of the wildlife. Sure. We like to hold ourselves above it because we have opposable thumbs. We have big brains. We drive cars. We fly places and airplanes. But when, when rubber meets the road, we are an animal. And when it all comes back, I mean, it doesn't take very much from Mother Nature, whether that be a blizzard, a uh, you know, an avalanche, a tornado, a, a hurricane. When these things happen from Mother Nature, you don't feel very powerful as a human being. No, no, you do not. And it really puts you back uh, kind of to your place whenever you see Mother. Like we've had a bunch of rain here. We've had a bunch of guys on talking about their and just how powerful uh, the, the the flooding is. You know, Mother Nature has a can in short order put you right back you know, snap you right back to reality and realize you're not that big in the grand scheme of everything. That's right. That's so, right. So it's just, it's just, it's just this idea of balance and trying to be better humans, trying to be better stewards of land, whether, whether, you know, whether you were for PETA, you identify yourself as a vegan, you identify yourself as a hunter, like we can all do better. And I don't care what you are. Um, I'm certainly willing to have an intelligent conversation with you and, um, and maybe we can break down some walls or maybe ask each other better questions that that are, are going to evoke a little bit more thought. We're going to start. We're going to, I got one more question for you and then we're going to let you go. Cause we've taken up a lot of your time and I know you're a busy guy. Uh, the other side, <laughs> I appreciate that. The other side just, it, it released what, uh, in March? You're, you're, it, it actually released in, it actually released in December, December, in December. December. Okay. Yep. You, you had movie, movie premieres all over the country. How did those go? Really well. Um, were you met some, with any? Someone, were you met with any protest at any of these places? No, 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 no. In fact, um, at a couple of the venues where we didn't have a lot of time, like a couple of them popped up late. Um, we didn't sell the theaters out, but at any of the theaters where we had any time at all to promote it, like we did one in Fort Collins, Colorado, in a two hundred and fifty seat theater completely sold out like i walked in it was very intimidating for me i walked in the lobby at night and the lobby was standing room only completely packed wall to wall um every single seat i i'd never even really seen that before in my life but every single seat in the theater packed um uh really fantastic we had two showings in minneapolis completely packed house um and we've done some other showings that have had um, smaller uh, turnouts just because, like I said, lack of time. We did one this year in, in Tennessee. I went down to do a turkey hunt with a bunch of Navy SEALs and some guys from the NRA in Tennessee. And and um, one of the guys from the NRA, really nice gentleman, dear friend of mine, Lacey Biles, uh, a university that he graduated from, and I can't think of the name of it right now. It's just a small private university. It was right down the road, like 30 minutes away. And it had a beautiful old theater there, and they wanted to play it, and so we played it there. And I think only about uh, 150 or so people showed up. Um, but it went extremely well, and it was really cool in that theater because the kid, the kid that was running the theater, was not a hunter, did not grow up in a hunting family. I wouldn't say he was against hunting, but he w- he wouldn't speak very highly of hunting. Certainly, he didn't have much to say about it. Mm-hmm. And he watched the film, and he came down to me afterwards, and he was completely moved. He's like, the world, he was, obviously he's a young kid, too, he's probably 20, 
college age kid, but he's like, the world needs to see this. The world needs to see your work. He's like, I feel so completely educated on everything that I've just seen. He's like, I mean, he, he, he couldn't talk fast enough to me of how blown away he was. And that all the other showings, everything has been in t- terribly positive. Not a single protest or not a single protest, not a single heckler, not, I mean, and I can't even tell you how many people came up to me afterwards and said, I don't hunt. I've never hunted. I've always kind of been against hunting, but in the light of what, you know, and, and I just had a woman last week, I went to go see, um, we have a full-time musician that works um, with us at Sigmanta, and he was playing, he's a violinist, and he plays in a number of different bands locally here um, in the Wisconsin, Minneapolis type area, and we went to a show of his at this bar, and it was an outside show, and and uh, this older woman came up to me. She was probably late fifties, early sixties, kind of a kind of a biker type woman. If I if I had a stereotype, her, she came up to me and um, very well spoken, but um, um, very charming lady. And she came up to me and, and she had recognized me. She had went to one of the Minneapolis premieres. Um, Casey, our violinist, uh, has met her at a couple of um, band gigs, and he invited her. And so she came with a number of other people that had nothing to do with hunting. And she was completely moved um, by the piece, and she came over to me at the show and talked to me. So, uh, yeah, no protest, nothing like that, and, and lots of non-hunters. Uh, they had a lot of questions, and um, and were just moved by moved by the work altogether. So it was, it was very rewarding. That's awesome, man. And where can people find the, where can people find your work at if if our listeners are wanting to get this video? Yep, uh, we sell them uh, in DVD form, and then also we do some live streaming on DonnieVincent.com. And then, of course, like you can find me on Instagram. I think it's Donnie underscore Vincent. And then also Facebook, you just search Donnie Vincent, D-O-N-N-I-E Vincent. Um, and we are working towards um, getting our films on um, iTunes, which takes quite a bit of time. But by the end of summer, we should have all three films currently on iTunes, and then as we come out with new films here in the future, this next year we'll come out with another one. Um, we're just going to get it set up right away, so it, it start um, going through the process to get on iTunes right away. So, what are you working on for this year? Um, we're working on a bunch of projects. Um, primarily, the one the one uh, film that we're editing to come out with is basically the Rivers Divide Two. Our first film is called The Rivers Divide. Uh, hunting this particular deer in, in Western North Dakota and uh, it turned out to be a fantastic story and and uh, a similar story to the first one kind of played out in the same ranch that I've hunted on um, but over a much longer period of time so we're gonna we're retelling that story in fantastic fashion and um, and then I'm spending 10 days or two weeks I think in Australia in July and we have a film mostly filmed in in Australia already but I'm going to go back and get some final assets to that, um, hunting Asiatic water buffalo and spending some time with the aboriginals and a dear friend of mine over there named Nick Joyce, who's a hunter, conservationist, and guide. And then after that, um, I'm spending approximately 8 to 10 weeks in Alaska this fall filming. Good stuff. And so, hmm. yeah, we have a lot of work that's going to be coming up here in uh, in, in the future. We, we're, not, we're, not, we're not stopping by any means, not even slowing down. It's just everything is everything's kind of uh identifying itself right like we don't we don't necessarily we have our route and and 
our, our business and our ideas and our storytelling take shape, but really the audiences also help us help us with it taking shape. And so we just love telling the stories and being honest and intrinsic about it. And, and uh, so our work's going to continue for some time. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm looking down at my notes here, and I didn't uh, really touch anything. So uh, we'd love to have you back on any time. <laughs> Uh, I know, I, like I said, we've taken up uh, an hour and a half of your time, so I really appreciate you coming on with us, and uh, good luck to you uh, this fall. I know you sound like a busy guy, and uh, I'm going to go get the other side right now. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, um, let me know what you guys think about it, and just let me know if you guys ever want to do another one of these things. I'd be happy to hop on. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get you back on uh, it, soon. Yes, we sure appreciate it, Donnie. Have a wonderful day, and God bless you, and hope things keep going keep fighting the good fight for us man because uh it's guys like you that uh can put together intelligent arguments that uh make us texas rednecks seem just uh not so stupid (laughs) i appreciate that guy you guys have a great evening all right man see ya thank you so much Bye -bye. Bye bye. what a guy let me tell you what anybody go live in the fucking jungles and bink the tigers hell no barefoot mm. no he's a He's a man's man for sure. We we we've had guests on here that have got these huge balls. I don't know how they walk. Sean Dwyer was one of them. He's one of them. We had somebody else just the other day that that really impressed me, and I can't remember who it was. It just, Andy Shaver? No, it's not. It wasn't Andy. Your balls are in your wife's purse. Uh, I can't remember who it was. Somebody else just the other day. I, but anyways, just to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Hell, Chris Pruitt got a mic to bull riding school. I yeah. Just, mm. But uh, I, I just in Bangladesh, if anything gets struck by a snake, you're going to die. Done. I mean, just I just ugh, nothing that's, you can do about it. And the scary things are the things he didn't tell us about is the guys with the machine guns and all sure. that. He didn't really go into that, but sure. you know there were some incidents. Just Absolutely, an awesome guy. His his videos are amazing, and just it's a rare human being to do the kind of stuff that. A hundred years ago was common, you know, people went and stayed in the woods, yeah. trappers and everybody else, and that's just amazing. He's a, what a very good story, a good guy, and we'll be I will be more than happy to have him on with us again. You know, and uh I think that there's a longing for kind of returning back to the way that we used to be. You know, you, you, just like going back to Sasquatch barbecue, there his videos of just being out in wilderness and cooking meat on an open fire. I I think they would never admit it, but I think a lot of people in the city kind of have this urge that they can't quite put their finger on, but it's there, and they never admit it, to kind of get back to the way that we used to be. Oh, I, I think you're right. Most of the people live in the big cities, live like there because that's where they make a living. And they'll tell their friends that they're against the way that we do things. Yeah, but I think a lot of them would go that way. Huh? I think a lot of them would like to be where we are. No, that's what I'm saying. Uh, they'll, they'll tell their friends that they're against, uh, you know, kind of that primal way of living that hunters, you know, have, taking a life, or just cooking a, a big juicy steak on an open fire. But secretly, they're sitting in their office watching those videos. So uh, Donnie Vincent, incredible man, uh, and he's talented, talented, talented. I bet you after day three of camping with a vegetarian and you start cooking meat, I bet after day three of not eating shit or just eating nuts and berries, he'd be like, I think I'll take some of that. You would take duck and goose. Oh, it, after day three, you damn right I would. I've smell been in that. Cooking, I've been in that situation. Smell it before. cooking on butter. Yeah. Mm. Well, I've been in that situation in Alaska, and I, I ended up eating some ducks and goose. 
a duck and geese, but I sure was glad when we got back to civilization, I could have a hamburger and freaking something else. Yep. Anyways, good deal, good show. Yeah, go look him up if you're interested in any of his videos. Go to uh, go to his website, and uh, it's all right there. And and I am currently kicked off Facebook again for another thirty days. So you have to go to Jeff Stanfield now on Facebook, and not Jeff L. Stanfield. Jeff L. Stanfield is on suspension. So is it thirty days again, or is it it's thirty? Longer? It's thirty days. And this time is absolutely stupid. So you'll have stupid. it again in about August. Yeah, to this one was the one that pissed me off more than anything. I don't even know why you push it anymore. I didn't push nothing. I didn't even say nothing you, bad. No name calling, no nothing. I didn't call nobody names. You did too. You said uh, something about meth heads, white meth heads or something like that. I called that. them meth monsters. Okay. Well, well, that's not calling a that, name. Yes, it is. Okay, sensitive Sally. I don't think I'm it is. I'm not sensitive Sally. I'm just deal. I'm just explaining this to you again on how you're getting banned. Number one, you're probably flagged from getting banned so many times. So yep. anything that you do say is going to get, anything off color that you say is going to get a ban. People need to work on their sense of humor. The thing that makes me mad is I can't even I can't even defend myself because you can't call nobody. No. You can't do nothing. You're just at the mercy of some liberal loon bag that doesn't like hunting. You think with, you think one of the Facebook moderators listens to us or I could explain to them they could help me a little bit? Yeah. Try to get them on the podcast. I, I don't think that's going to happen either. All right. Thank you all very much for listening. God bless you all. And if you're looking for some hunts for some dates, you need to call me pretty quick. We are starting to really – been busy week this week. A lot of calls. So people are jumping on, getting ready to hunt for next year. Everybody's so uh, starting to see the months roll off the calendar. And After July 4th, it's, it, it always picks up. Yeah. July 4th is the big pickup date. August 1st, things start picking up a little bit. And then after Labor Day weekend, boom. There's one more. Yeah, it's Labor Day weekend. That's when things start really rolling. All right. Thank you to Donnie Vincent, and thank you guys for listening. Head on over to iTunes and leave us some reviews. We love seeing those. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, we're not hard to find. I'm on Instagram, Andy underscore Shaver. Jeff, just message it. Get him on Instagram because he's not going to. Facebook is a mess. Stanfield 68 All right. Peace.